Welcome to our first Narrative Medicine Rounds of 2009. Um, we're thrilled to have many familiar faces back, and as ever, thrilled to be expanding our Narrative Medicine community and have many new faces here, and we hope you keep coming to our first Wednesday of the month Narrative Medicine Rounds. And uh, my name is Sayantani Dasgupta. I am one of the faculty members in the program in narrative medicine at Columbia University. And I welcome you here today, um, not only on my own behalf, but on behalf of my dear colleagues, Rita Sharon, um, our newest uh, faculty member, uh, Nellie Herman, Craig Irvine, uh, Marsha Hurst, Morris Spiegel, Pat Stanley, uh, Eric Marcus. Um, this year um, is very exciting. We have had some wonderful speakers already and are looking forward to a series of uh, very exciting and varied speakers coming up uh, for the rest of the academic year, including uh, Perry Plass, our own uh, Nellie Herman, uh, Julie Solomon, Priscilla Wald, and our June um, end of the academic year uh, narrative medicine round speaker will be Dr. Oliver Sachs. So we're thrilled to have uh, such a wonderful lineup. Um, please, uh, if you are interested in these speakers, if you're interested in our speaker series, if you're interested in the work that we do, um, I do have handouts um, outlining our upcoming speakers in the back, as well as a sign-in list. If you would like to get our monthly um, notifications or monthly emails about our upcoming speakers, please do sign um, up in the back. Um, I also want to acknowledge that uh, these wonderful rounds, which bring together authors and scholars um, speaking and writing and engaged in the work really at the intersees of narrative and healthcare, this wonderful speaker series wouldn't be possible without the help of our dear friend, Joe Gattuso, who is right there, wave your hand, Joe, um, and our friends at MBS Vox and Common Health, um, who have uh, made this speaker series possible this year. Um, the other uh, kind of announcement of excitement that I was very, those of you who are here uh, and for our December rounds with Sam Shem know that I was very excited uh, to make this announcement, and I am no less excited to make it now which is that in the fall of 2009, a Master's of Science in Narrative Medicine will be offered at Columbia University. Um, there is information in the form of handouts, um, and in addition, another sign-up sheet uh, in the back. Um, you can also always go to our website, www.narrativemedicine.org, and get more information about applying about this exciting upcoming Master's of Science. Um, and finally, before I um, kind of exit the podium area and allow my colleague Morris Spiegel to introduce our speaker for tonight, um, I want to just note one more exciting development, which is that um, beginning tonight, we will have an audio podcast available of our Narrative Medicine Rounds. Um, so, you know, for future knowledge and for your colleagues who couldn't make it tonight, uh, go to our website and kind of click on the button that, you know, says Narrative Medicine Rounds, and we should have a pretty easy link to uh, our speakers for this year right there. The first one of whom will be uh, Michael Greenberg. 
Um, so without further, any other further announcements, I would uh, like to introduce my dear friend and colleague, uh, Morris Spiegel. It is my great pleasure to introduce Michael Greenberg today. Michael Greenberg is a native New Yorker, and he is a New York writer. Even Hurry Down Sunshine is in its way a New York story. He did, it's true, spend some years living abroad in Central and South America, where at age 18, he found himself working as a stringer for an Argentinian newspaper covering what has come to be known as the Dirty War. Michael has published fiction and essays in magazines and literary venues, including O, oh, the Oprah Magazine, The Village Voice, the New York Review of Books, including a superb recent piece on memory that was widely emailed, especially in psychoanalytic circles. Since 2003, he has contributed a much-loved and loyally followed Feuilleton-styled column for the prestigious literary supplement of the London Times. It's titled Freelance. It's their voice from New York. These columns are currently being collected for a book which will be released in September. His unanimously acclaimed Hurry Down Sunshine, hailed as a new classic by Oliver Sacks, Joyce, Carol Oates, and really many, many others, always that phrase, a new classic in this field, has brought him to us today. This account of the summer when his 15-year-old daughter Sally was, as he put it, struck mad, finds a new way to do illness narrative, as you will see. I admire this book so much with its many unexpected rewards. Michael has explained that he took the book's title from a blues song. The singer is eager for the workday to end to see what tomorrow will bring. But for Michael, as he put it, the line suggests waiting for the bright light of mania to set, to release his daughter Sally from its fierce hold. For this reader, there's yet another kind of light in the book, a warmth that holds the reader in its grip, that makes us want to linger in the sunshine of Michael's lucid, hard-edged empathy for Sally, and really for all those represented in the novel, in the book, and somehow for us, the reader, too. Describing what strangely is hardly described, that precise the precise character and vicissitudes of the love a parent feels for a child in distress, Michael Greenberg wrenches open our hearts and our eyes. Welcome. Thank you all for coming. I'm really pleased to be here. Um, I'm a great fan of the very concept of narrative medicine. And, um, uh, uh, and its idea that uh, stories somehow feed us another dimension of, uh, and, and give us another take on what are symptoms. And um, so it's really wonderful to be here. Um, yeah, uh, you know, it's a it, it's a funny thing to have written a memoir like this, um, in which I reveal what 
I originally thought, and perhaps many readers think, would be best left painlessly unsaid. And, and um, uh, in fact, I don't think of myself as a memoirist, although the book is subtitled a memoir. It's not a memoirist type. It's not a book about turning points in my life. It's not a book about uh, personal awakenings, personal traumas. It's about one single event and one single summer. And um, um, my challenge in writing it was to create the feeling of being there. I realized I had, there, there, I had, I, I did a lot of research, but I realized that my research was of little interest to readers and my experience was of greater interest. It took me some time in writing it to realize that and to let go of whatever I had researched. Clinicians can explain it better than I can. And to talk about really the experiential Nevertheless, I, I, I uh, had a lot of misgivings about writing this book, and I stopped at a certain point after writing about 50 or 60 pages, and I thought, this is gauche. This is, this is, there's something wrong with this, uh, with telling this story, uh, exposing and revealing my family and my daughter to uh, the, the, the pressures that we were under that summer. And uh, I picked it up again, partly because it meant so much to me. Sally's experience was so important to me and to those closest to her, because it really did change our view of the world and our view of what the very act of communication is. Seeing Sally go out of communication, seeing my daughter, the person perhaps closest to me, who had learned to speak from me, become impenetrable, become more impenetrable than a stranger on the street, was very, very stabbing and um, awakened me in some way to the fragility of communication itself, to the fragility of the very agreement we have between ourselves of what, what language means, what words mean, our ability to emerge from our subjectivity, and which is a struggle for all of us, and converse, and have, and trade ideas, and trade emotions, and trade goods, and do all the things that social life are composed of. To see that become impossible, which of course is the experience of anyone who has someone become psychotic, who's close to the experiences. Um, uh, I, I, I continued writing the book because I began to, I began to look at all the literature a little more closely and realized that uh, although there are great, great tradition books about madness, as it was once called, um, that maybe begins with, with, with um, Richard Burton's Anatomy of Melancholy back in the early 1700s, goes forward to William James's book called Principles of Psychology, which he tried to pass off as a book by a doctor, a medical book, but in fact is most deeply and most memorably an account of his own mood disorder. And then trotting forward to the texts that we all know, the texts that 
people who suffer from this, and people who are close to people who suffer from this tend to read. Uh, 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 Sylvia Plath's autobiographical novel, The Bell Jar. Uh, Styron's short account of his depression, Darkness Visible. Wonderful title took from uh, Milton's Paradise Lost, Darkness Visible, wonderful description of depression on it. And, and um, uh, uh, Kay Redfield Jameson's very brave accounts, and she works in the field, an unquiet mind. But all of these books were, were about people writing about their own experience, or by people rather, writing about their own experience of being psychotic. And so I began to realize that apart from clinicians and a few family members here and there, this account from the outside, from the other shore, was missing. So that's my excuse for putting myself, <laughs> for being the exhibitionist that one is when one writes about one's family and oneself in such a naked way. Um, I, I, uh, there was another thing that, that uh, anyway, I want to read from the very first introduction, the very first pages of the book, and go on from there, maybe talk a little more, and read from another section of the book. <coughs> On July 5th, 1996, my daughter was struck mad. She was 15, and her crack-up marked a turning point in both our lives. Now, I'm gonna stop here for a minute, because coming to the word crack-up reminds me of all the people that have criticized me for using that term. Um, they think uh, it, 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 it has been called a harsh term, a demeaning term by some, and I understand what they mean, but I use the term a lot in the book, and uh, what I mean by crack up is something that I think really describes what occurred, which is a fragmentation of consciousness, a fragmentation of self and of psyche that occurred with Sally, and that occurs, I think, in severe cases of psychosis. It is a cracking a falling apart or a whole. And this is the spirit in which I use this term. Breakdown, which is an oft-used term, to me is too general and can be applied to something as simple as uh, uh, breaking down into tears. So crack up to me is, 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 is written in that spirit. On July 5th, 1996, my daughter was struck mad. She was 15, and her cracker marked a turning point in both our lives. I feel like I'm traveling and traveling with nowhere to go back to, she said, in a burst of lucidity, while hurtling away towards some place I could not dream of or imagine. I wanted to grab her and bring her back, but there was no turning back. Suddenly, every point of connection between us had vanished. It didn't seem possible. She had learned to speak from me. She had heard her first stories from me. Indelible experiences, I thought. And yet, from one day to the next, we had become strangers. My first impulse was to blame myself. 
Predictively, I tried to tally up the mistakes I had made, what I had failed to provide her, but they weren't enough to explain what had happened. Nothing was. Briefly, I placed my hope in the doctors, then realized that beyond the relatively narrow clinical facts of her symptoms, they knew little more about her condition than I did. That's not strictly true, of course, but the underlying mechanisms <laughs> for, the, for the doctors here, I, um, what I mean to say is that the underlying mechanisms of psychosis, I would discover, are as shrouded in mystery as they have ever been. I believe maybe there could be an agreement on that. Um, and while this left little immediate hope for a cure, it pointed to broader secrets. It's something of a sacrilege nowadays to speak of insanity as anything but the chemical brain degree disease, that on one level it is. But there were moments with my daughter when I had the distressed sense of being in the presence of a rare force of nature, like a great blizzard or flood, destructive, but in its way, astounding, too. And then, then I, I, I go on to tell the story of the summer in the present tense and uh, why it was astounding to us, to those closest to Sally, and to Sally herself, who have had no experience of psychosis, or I have actually had some experience with psychosis, as many people have, but nevertheless, I was unable to recognize it in my daughter at first or to admit that this, this is what, what had occurred. Um, the, the, the analogy to a storm really was very true for us because it was as if an unexpected wind had come upon us and our little boat, the little boat that is our family, was ripped apart. And when the wind lifted, which it finally did, although we were unsure that it would, um, we were hanging, each hanging on to our little piece of the boat that we had managed to clutch onto when it broke apart, looking across the water at each other, surprised to sort of have come through it, to have eyes at all. And um, uh, my, my, you know, it's interesting because Sally was 15. To burst into florid, manic psychosis. When, when this happens, of course there are percolations and signs. I think that Sally's adolescence made it, made it difficult for me to realize what was going on because of course the, 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 the behavioral spectrum of adolescence is quite broad. And when I think of it now, I say of course, she was approaching a manic attack. Of course she was in a state of hypomania, about to fragment and crack like bizarre. But there she was, sitting in our apartment, not sleeping at all, sleeping catnapping occasionally, reading ferociously Shakespeare's sonnets, annotating the, te the, the text, writing in the margins, looking up the words, listening on a continuous loop, to Glenn Gould playing the Goldberg Variations. Tremendously alive, bristling, irritated, dismissive, combative.
degree, but again, all within the realm of adolescent behavior. My thought about it was, was that Sally was actually, despite her insults to me, whenever I asked her what, she, what was wrong, she would say, leave me alone, nothing's wrong, and dismiss me in the rudest of terms, still within the realm of adolescence. <laughs> and and, and, and I, I actually was kind of rejoicing inside. I thought, this is the intellectual, what I'm witnessing is the intellectual awakening of my daughter. What I'm witnessing is she becoming what she will be and what she is. And perhaps I was witnessing that, but not as I suspected. Wow. Now, when she did burst into manic psychosis, unmistakable, something we recognize, we don't need a specialist to recognize, we've recognized psychosis of this kind since recorded time. There are accounts of it in the Hebrew Bible, there are accounts of it in Greek, in, in, in ancient Greek literature. There are accounts of it everywhere. We know it when we see it. Um, uh, when this occurred, I still couldn't accept it. I couldn't, couldn't accept or believe or fathom that my daughter had gone away. I kept waiting for her to return. And I'm going to read a little scene that describes her, her, uh, uh, Pat, Sally's stepmother, who I, who I had, uh, who, and, and, and my wife at the time, and still is, uh, um, we had been married a short time. Pat and I had been out for dinner, and uh, when we returned home, there was a message from Sally's mother, you know, who lives in Vermont, and the knives, I noticed, the knives in their block, where you place each one into its slit, were turned toward the wall in the kitchen. I noticed this immediately upon walking into the kitchen, and then I found out that the police had done this. The police had taken Sally home. She had been in, in the middle of Hudson Street, trying to stop traffic, pulled by a friend to the sidewalk, where she proceeded to try to stop passers-by to impart to them what she believed was, to impart to them her vision, as often occurs with, with, with manic psychosis, a world-saving, generous vision that is that if only she could tell the world about this, the world would be okay. It's of course the, 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 an instance of supreme grandiosity, but it's also uh, um, despotic. And, 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 and it's, it's, you know, I'm gonna tell you. <laughs> and uh, of course, nobody wants to hear this, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Norman Mailer once said about, about, about uh, well, you know, people sometimes do this with books, you know, you have to read this book, it's gonna change your life. And, and Norman Mailer once said, when anyone ever says that to me, I run the other way. Well, Sally actually was giving them the whole thing to change their life, she was the book. Um, I learned this when I came home, but Sally was asleep in bed. And the next morning, she woke, this is the scene. 
The next morning, Sally has the dazed look of someone who has just crawled out of a car wreck. When I ask her about last night, she collapses onto the couch and presses the heels of her hands against her eyes. I sit down next to her, take her hand, concentrate on it. I say her name out loud, not addressing her exactly, but as if to assert a tenuous strand of contact between us. No response. Suddenly, she pulls away from me, jumps to her feet, and starts pacing around the apartment. She is shivering, not as one who is cold might shiver, but with a bristling inner quake of her being. And she is talking, or rather pushing words from her mouth, the way a shopkeeper pushes dust out the door of her shop with a broom. People are waiting for her, she says. People who depend on her at the Sunshine Cafe, holy place of light. She can't disappoint them. She must go to them now. The Sunshine Cafe was this dive by Hudson, by West Street in the village, uh, uh, where Sally grasped onto the name and to the sunshine of the name. And uh, would go in and try to, uh, and believed, of course, that she was one of the one of the most touching and, and, and really wrenching things about a person in the state of mania is that they believe that they don't understand that while they are imparting what they have to say, this drive to communicate, which is at its greatest, at its height time when the ability to communicate is at its nadir. This, this dichotomy is very dramatic. And people generally recoil. If they're polite, they hang out, but want to get away. If they're not polite, they push past and say, get out of my face. Um, uh, the, 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 the terrible thing for the person in mania, the really touching thing in a way, is that they don't realize, they don't pick up those signals. They don't realize the person. Very often, expressions of uh, recoil and repulsion are read as interest and attentiveness. She makes a run at the door. She wants to go to the Sunshine Cafe. She makes a run at the door. I throw myself in front of her, and she shoves me against the wall. Her strength is startling. Five feet four, maybe a hundred pounds, enormous gusts of energy whistling through her like a storm. This, of course, is another aspect of mania. Tremendous strength. Wrestling me to the floor, she rips off my glasses, cores my face till it bleeds. Pat lets out a shriek and runs over to help me. Overwhelmed by the two of us, the stretched wire of Sally's body slackens. I break our clinch, still guarding the door, and she scuttles out from under us, retreating to the opposite side of the apartment. She sits on the floor under a window, and we glare at each other, panting like animals across a cage. Recovering her composure, Pat slides down beside her. Who's waiting for you, Sally? What do you want to tell them? 
That's all the coaxing she requires. She erupts into language again, a pressured gush of words delivered with a false air of calmness this time, as if Pat has put a gun to her head and ordered her to sound normal. She's mimicking normality, which she believes is normal, too. Couldn't be more abnormal. It's very interesting that, you know, there's a, uh, we, uh, probably you all know the anecdote of the uh, manic patient who was given a lie detector test, and um, when he was asked if he was Napoleon, he answered no, and the lie detector registered that he was lying. <laughs> but it's been, what's particularly touching about that also is that he knows that they're not going to believe him. So he says no. <laughs> She's had a vision, she tells Pat. It came to her a few days ago in the Blinker Street playground. While she was watching her two little while she was watching two little girls play on the wooden footbridge near the slide. In a surge of insight, she saw their genius their limitless, native, little girl genius, and simultaneously realized that we all are geniuses, that the very idea the word stands for has been distorted. Genius is childhood. The creator gives it to us with life, and society drums it out of us before we have the chance to follow the impulses of our naturally creative souls. Einstein, Newton, Mozart, Shakespeare, not one of them was abnormal. They simply found a way to hold on to the gift every one of us is given, like a door prize at birth. Sally related her vision to the little girls in the playground. Apparently, they understood her perfectly. Then she walked out onto Bleecker Street. This is where we lived at the time in the West Village. Bleecker Street, and discovered her life had changed. The flowers in front of the Korean deli in their green plastic vases, the magazine covers in the news shop window, the buildings, cars, all took on sharpness beyond anything she had imagined. The sharpness, she said, of present time. A wavelet of energy swelled through the center of her being. She could see the hidden life in things, their detailed brilliance, the funneled genius that went into making them what they are. Sharpest of all was the misery on the faces of all the people she passed. She tried to explain her vision to them, but they just kept rushing by. Then it hit her. They already know about their genius. It isn't a secret, but much worse. Genius has been suppressed in them, as it had been suppressed in her. And the enormous effort required to keep it from percolating to the surface and reasserting its glorious hold on our lives is the cause of all human suffering. Suffering that Sally, with this epiphany, has been chosen among all people to cure. It's interesting, you know, I'm just thinking of this now. I, 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 I mentioned this in another part of the book, but one of the there are two things about mania, I think, also, and, 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 and all psychosis. This is common, I think, to all psychosis, to severe psychotic depression and also schizophrenia and paranoia in particular, is that there's a tremendous logic, that it's really a perversion of our ability to think logically. 
Now, our ability to think logically is not always a virtue. It's just a particular way we have of thinking. And it doesn't always lead to a subjective truth. It just leads to the logical end of what we think is logical. And um, uh, Wittgenstein, I think, uh, sort of revealed this when he destroyed Bertrand Russell's ideas of, of Bertrand Russell was the last great logician in Wittgenstein tore him apart, and uh, uh, so this, this ability, this tautology of logic that, that accompanies psychosis is a very interesting thing, and I think this, this vision of Sally's is, is an illustration of that logic at work. Patton, after listening to this from Sally, Pat and I are dumbstruck, less by what she is saying than how she is saying it. No sooner does one thought come galloping out of her mouth than another overtakes it, producing a pileup of words without sequence, each sentence canceling out the previous one before it's had a chance to emerge. Our pulses racing, we strain to absorb the sheer volume of energy pouring from her tiny body. She jabs at the air, thrusts out her chin, a cut-up performance, really, the overwrought despot forcing utopia down the throats of her poor subjects. But it isn't a performance. Her drive to communicate is so powerful it's tormenting her. Each individual word is like a toxin she must expel from her body. The longer she speaks, the more incoherent she becomes. And the more incoherent she becomes, the more urgent is her need to make her to make us understand her. This is a little bit like listening to Ann Coulter or something. <laughs> I feel helpless watching her, and yet I am galvanized by her sheer aliveness. Spinoza spoke of vitality as the purest virtue, the only virtue. The drive to persist, to flourish, he said, is the absolute quality shared by all living beings. What happens, however, when vitality grows so powerful that Spinoza's virtue is inverted, and instead of flourishing, one is driven to eat oneself alive? But of course, what presents itself as vitality is not really vitality, it's illness. And um, while I hoped that Sally Perhaps my next line of defense was that she had taken a drug of some kind. What would normally be uh, um, upsetting to a parent was the saving explanation because it would have shown that at least it would have proven that this was temporary, that it had an objective cause that I could understand. Uh, uh, Pat, Sally's stepmother, much more objective than I was. Really, the, the way the hero of this book, her, her objectivity and yet her, her love for Sally and her caring for Sally uh, uh, steered us through these events. And um, she said, you know, uh, when I said she will come back to herself again to Pat, Pat said, we have to think of it, let's, you know, Let's think a little bit about what herself really is, Michael. And so we went to the we went to the uh, 
uh, emergency room, and uh, Sally was immediately um, admitted in what I didn't realize at the time, but is obviously true, was at, uh, in a state that is, is, is as diagnosable to a psychiatrist as bronchitis is to a, to a general practitioner. Uh, um, florid mania, 90 seconds, and she's in the hospital. 90 second interview with the attending psychiatrist, the resident psychiatrist at the time. Uh, and uh, it's, um, Now, you know, for us, the, 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 the psych ward, the hospitals themselves, of course, we all know, everyone has had experience with hospitals, not just professionals, everyone, practically. Um, and the hospital is a, is a complete world. It's a world like very few other places in, 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 in the social order. It's, it's a world like maybe the army, boarding school, in the sense that it is a complete world. It has its own clock. It, 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 it's a, you, you awake and you go to sleep there. It's a world out of time. It's a world within the world. Uh, um, the psych ward within this complete world of the hospital is yet another world. First of all, in the psych ward, there are no emblems of illness. There's no IV bag. There's no scar. There's no pulse and heart monitor beeping away and malfunctioning. There's no um, there's no emblem of disease. Second of all, of course, it's locked. And in Sally's case. She was put into isolation or the quiet room because she was in such a state of fulminating mania that she couldn't be with the other patients. And so she was locked away from those who were already locked away. Now, I understand that she did need to be in that quiet room for the 36 hours that she was there. Uh, nevertheless, it was extremely stabbing to us that she now has been is not only separated from the general population, but she is separated from the population that is in the ward. Um, there's very little sympathy for what we call the behavioral diseases. And I think the reason for that is, is that it's hard for people to believe that a behavioral disease is really an illness since we are all sort of trained to believe, and we all, our whole lives are invested in believing that behavior is the one aspect of ourselves that we can correct. So it's a very shamed position to be in for the family, um, less so for Sally, embraced the ward and realized on some level that she needed to be there. Um, 
What was, what was, a second transformation occurs on, on, on the psych ward, which is that uh, mania is, uh, 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 Sally's level of mania is, I believe, a, a medical emergency. Uh, one needs to be wrenched from it. Um, uh, uh, it could do great damage to herself, even if she, not only social damage or, or damage of, of, of being taken advantage of in the worst way in the regular world, but just physical damage. Uh, uh, there are cases prior to medication of, 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 of people dropping dead from exhaustion uh, from fulminating mania that can go on for months and months. Um, so Sally is wrenched from mania with haloperidol, as it were, uh, as it happened. Could have been any number of antipsychotic medication, dopamine-blocking medications. Um, and so a second transformation occurs for, the, for, 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 for those of us who are trying to figure out what is happening. A second transformation occurs, and it's almost as shocking as the first. The first transformation being from the Sally I know to the, to the girl I knew to the manic girl, the psychotic girl. And the second transformation is from the psychotic girl to the heavily medicated girl. And this is also bewildering because, of course, the medication doesn't work miracles and it's not immediate. Sometimes dopamine blockers cause actual mania in its first hours to increase because the, 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 the initial response is for, is, is for the brain to, to, to manufacture yet more dopamine to compensate for the initial shock. Um, but eventually, mania is tamped down over a period of weeks. Uh, over a period of days, it's as if it's existing, it's as if there were two Sallies uh, uh, before us. One is the manic Sally, jumping to the surface and then retreating. A battle is occurring, a war is occurring between the manic Sally, which wants to persist and wants to live on. The diabolical aspects of mania and all psychosis, even, I believe, depression, deep depression, is that it seduces us, it's a seductive, it puts us at the center of a universe. Everything leads to us. It is, as Freud said, I believe, a form of megalomania. Uh, paranoia should certainly recognize as, as everything occurring. There's a kind of a high, there's a seduction. In the case of mania, the seduction is even greater because you're omnipotent in its earliest stages. And this is why manic patients so often relapse, I think, because they, who among us could turn away from feelings of omnipotence, verbal fluidity, attractiveness, seductiveness? Um, you know, it puts one briefly in the state that we all wish to be in. Very difficult to turn away from before it implodes, fragments, and cracks us. So um, eventually, Sally was released from the hospital after three weeks and um, still out of mania, of course, heavily medicated, still, however, impenetrable to me and to those closest to her, still 
capable of the communication that we had before. Um, and this, 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 to me personally, as her father, was what was the hardest thing, was to, was to, was to retrieve, was to have her back again, was to retrieve Sally. And uh, months into the summer, uh, I mean late into the summer, when she was home and I was caring for her, and Pat was caring for her, and Robin, and we were all kind of trying to get her ready for, hopefully she could achieve enough of a remission to enter high school in September, 10th grade. She could return to school. Our great luck was that it happened over the summer. Um, and uh, uh, this inability to, to, to communicate with Sally, this repeated and constant inability was like watching a death over and over again. And I, I, I uh, became so frustrated with it that I decided I would enter Sally's world as best I could and to figure out where she was at, watching her medicated over these weeks and now seven, eight weeks. I decided a little desperately and foolishly that I would take her medication and, 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 and see what the hell was going on. So, so this scene is that. Unable to bear waiting any longer for Sally to get out from under her pitiless ball of fire, I try to see the world as she does and swallow a dose of her medication. It's around 10 in the morning, and I am sitting in the living room with Sally when it begins to hit me waves. I feel dizzy and far away, as if I'm about to fall from a great height, but my feet are nailed to the edge of the precipice so that the rush of the fall itself is indefinitely deferred. The air feels watery and thick until finally I am neck deep in a swamp through which it is possible to move only with the greatest of effort and then only a few feet at a time. Of course, antipsychotic medication like haloperidol does affect your motor abilities in its blocking of dopamine, which drives the motor and physical fluidity. I pick up the New York Times, which I had bought earlier in the morning. Scientists studying a meteorite that fell to Earth from Mars have identified organic compounds and certain minerals that they conclude are evidence of primitive life on early Mars. I read the sentence several times, so baffled by what the words primitive, meteorite, and Mars have to do with one another that I start again at the first word, determined to make sense of it. By then, however, I'm lost, flailing away in my head unable to gain any momentum of thought or meaning. The frustration reminds me of what I felt as a boy where my older brother would press his foot to my chest, holding me down. This goes on for what seems like an hour, but when I glance at the clock, and it takes another 30 seconds to read it, I see that only a couple of minutes have elapsed. Now this is interesting, this inability to, 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 to make sense of anything, to concentrate. Uh, 
Robert Lowell, who was hospitalized at least 12 times during his life from, from mania, Lowell was one of the great American poets of the 20th century. Um, tremendous language facility. He describes in his journals being unable to make a three-letter word on a Scrabble board while under, while under heavy doses of Thorazin in the hospital. I am sitting on the couch while Sally is at the table tapping her right foot, an expenditure of energy that seems profligate and amazing. So this is what it is to be on meds, I think, dimly. Robert Lowell, describing the effects of chlorpromazine, wrote, I could hardly swallow my breakfast because I so dreaded the weighted bending down that would be necessary for making my bed. And the rational exigencies of bed making were more upsetting than the physical. My head ached. I felt my languor lift then descend again. That's low. To block dopamine in a brain such as mine, which manufactures more or less normal amounts of the stuff, is different from blocking in the manic brain such as Sally's or Lowell's. But I have the powerful sense of understanding something of what she is going through. On some fundamental level, I have, like Sally, been barred from experiencing the impact of being fully alive in the world. I rise from the couch to prove to myself that I am able to, take three steps across the room, and then yawning uncontrollably, one of the hallmarks of people on medication, oceanic yawns, rush to sit down again. I make an effort to care about the simplest things, preparing lunch for Sally, returning a phone call, but an ungraspable panic comes over me, a panic of indifference, if such a thing is possible, as if I had been relegated to a big part in the drama of my own existence, and moreover, have missed my cue to step on stage. And this, of course, is why people stop taking their meds, because they, they're not in their lives, and they have been relegated to a big part in their own existence. And this is not an attack on the meds at all. It's, 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 it's what we have, and they're completely necessary, and I, I recognize their necessity. Totally. But this is the effect. Gazing at Sally, I feel as if my impotence is indistinguishable from hers. I understand exactly what she meant when she said to Dr. Mason, I feel like I'm packed in foam rubber. And I understand the allure to her of cigarettes, the stimulating flare of the struck match, the roar tingle of the smoke when it hits the lungs, the quickened heartbeat when the blood vessels contract, and the narcotic lift of the nicotine. It offers its instant of actuality, of existence, sharpened and in focus. We all know that uh, the chain smoking that goes on. And, and, and here was my 15-year-old daughter converted into a smoker, which I didn't protest too much about because I figured in the context of our greater woes, I've let the smoking slide. Later, when the meds have worn off, and I have time to see Sally in the context of my, of my few hours in that numbed world, I realize that the drugs release her not from her cares, but from caring itself. For caring, exorbitant caring, 
about the meaning of a passing glance from a stranger, the look in a news, broadcaster's, news broadcaster's eyes on television, the fixed fired thoughts in our heads. Caring is the psychotic's curse. To depart from reason with the firm conviction that one is following it, reads a definition of madness from an 18th century encyclopedia. That again is the logic, to depart from logic with the firm conviction that one is following it. It's a very old definition of insanity, and I think it's quite a good one. And indeed, inordinate conviction is the chief warning sign of our delusions. For the patient to burn low, to be half asleep, to take no notice, is the medical goal. For the patient to live in a kind of emotional cordon sanitaire. Psychosis is the opposite of indifference. Indifference, therefore, would seem to be its logical cure. Now, however, while I'm under the boot of Sally's medication, the phone rings, and I have to call upon buried reserves of energy to answer it. I hear myself say hello, like someone with a pillow over his face. I'm sorry to wake you, but it's after 11, mon frère. Jean-Paul. I managed to say, recognizing the voice of the movie producer with whom I left a message several days ago seeking work. I was working as a freelance writer, and um, at the time I was doing quite a bit of hack work. So, uh, uh, my writing career wasn't allowing me to live off more serious writing. <laughs> and uh, Jean-Paul was one of the people that would sometimes give me work. He was a, uh, uh, movie producer, small time movie producer, and uh, that is the person on the phone. Can we meet this morning at my apartment, he asks. We have some business to talk over. I may as well warn you, I don't tend to play the usual games and hide the excitement I'm feeling. I'm almost certain you won't find it a waste of your time. It takes me a long moment to puzzle together the meaning of Jean-Paul's words. My daughter's sick, I can't leave her alone, I say feebly, after an interminable telephone pause. Then I'll come over to your place, I'm only around the corner. This is true. I've spent many an evening in the lavish garden of the duplex on West 11th Street where Jean-Paul holds court to a cacophonous guest list of fashion models, photographers, writers, and various new age clairvoyants. Does it have to be today? Yes, today, now. If you have any regard for me, Michael, you won't play hard to get. And saving me from the arduous effort of responding to this, he announces that it will be over in 15 minutes and ends our conversation. In an attempt to mobilize myself, I put on the kettle for coffee, but when it whistles, I am momentarily perplexed by the sound. Then I understand, though the logic required to measure and prepare a cup nearly defeats me. Before I am able to fill it with water, the cup falls out of my hand. The shattered glass looks tiny, and the prospect of getting out of the dustpan and broom is as challenging to me as that of scaling a 10-foot wall. I ponder it for a few seconds, not caring. It is a picture of broken glass, not actual broken glass. 
It almost doesn't exist. Then, momentarily appalled at the extent of my detachment, I stab myself in the hand with a fork. It hurts. Now, now, now this act, I didn't realize at the time, but, I, but later I did, that this act of stabbing myself in the hand, was that I, I was really reenacting the very birth of chlorpromazine, which was first developed as, 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 as a drug, hope, hoping to be a drug that would uh, um, uh, prevent shock during surgery, but it, it was no good for that. And uh, someone noticed that with the mice, they no longer bothered to climb up the rope to get their food. And so they sent it over to the psychiatric ward in 1952. And uh, we can imagine the, the, the shock of the superintendents and psychiatrists and nursing staff when the psychiatric ward, those days, the huge state hospitals, the yard, suddenly went silent. And everybody was just walking around. And the, uh, uh, psychiatrists of those days described this. This, this, this extraordinary revelation and effect of this new entry. So I discovered it her, which they had discovered in 1952. <laughs> it doesn't dull pain. I hear myself cry out as if from across the room. To alleviate the itching, rubbery dryness in my mouth, another aspect as we know, side effect, I drink straight from the kitchen tap, soaking my shirt. The door buzzer rings and I consider without much concern the picture Sally and I will present to Jean-Paul. In some muted place inside me, an immense anxiety has begun to wriggle about, like a man with duct tape over his mouth, straining to be heard. I desperately need the work Jean Paul can provide, and it is up to me to perform for it in some way, to persuade him to give it to me. I stand on the landing. Now, at the time we lived on Bank Street and West 4th, down in the village, lovely address, but a terrible building. Five-story walk-up, tenement building, essentially, though with a very deluxe address. Um, a five-story walk-up, which, which in the sweltering heat of August was a, a, a difficult ascent, or a, a, a kind of a pause for anyone visiting us, particularly difficult for I stand on the landing and listen to him climb the stairs. A rite of passage for any visitor to my apartment and an especially difficult ordeal for Jean-Paul, who pauses every 15 or 20 seconds before wheezily resuming his ascent. He appears in stages, his wiry gray hair and beard, the spin-art splashes of burst capillaries along the corners of his sharp nose, his compact Balsakian frame huffing into view, and then Jean-Paul offering me his limp, child-sized hand to shake. In my dullness, I allow the hand to hang in the air for an insulting amount of time until Jean-Paul withdraws it with a frown, 
and employs the hand to flick away the sweat that is streaming from his forehead. Jean-Paul, I say with the belief that I am shouting his name in welcome, yet hearing myself in a barely audible whisper. He takes in Sally lying narcotized on the sofa, and then, after following me into the kitchen for a glass of water, the smashed cup on the floor. She's been running a fever, I explained through the epoxy of my lips. It's been rough sledding for her, especially in this heat. At the time, I was hiding Sally's illness. I didn't want anyone to know what had happened. I, th I, 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 I believed that the stigma would be great onto her and as great onto myself. So in a way, I was protecting myself as well as her. Or perhaps I thought, I told myself I was protecting her, but I was actually protecting myself. Um, it was Sally who, months, months later, forced me out of that misconception that she needed to hide her illness, and that, in fact, the pressure of hiding it was itself a danger for her. And uh, so she, she wised me up about that. But at the time, I was hiding her illness, as, as I am to Jean-Paul this scene. In response to Jean-Paul's expression of concern, I add with a haste that could be interpreted as callous, she'll be fine. We sit down face to face at the table, and I am able to pick up that John Paul is uncharacteristically nervous. He has read my novel about the reporter who covers his own crimes. This was a gimmicky novel I had written. Um, I completely forgotten that I had given it to him three or four months ago, it must have been. John Paul talks excitedly about the wonderful movie it will make a story about identity, about how we see ourselves and how we try to get others to see us. A classic movie, he says, a noir, but not stylized like a noir because that's a trap that dozens of filmmakers have lost their shirts falling into. Trying to act attentive, I build my face into what I hope comes across as my most engaged, crinkled expression then feel the tremor of an oceanic yawn coming on. <laughs> and devote all the feeble force of my concentration to keeping it from breaking the surface. With your permission, Michael, I would like to option the property and develop it into a film. Would you be willing under a separate deal to write the screenplay? The property, the screenplay, uh, that would be wonderful. Excellent. I'll be in touch with your agent to hash out the terms, as long as I know you're on board. My agent? Am I still on her radar? My last communication with her was to convey my decision to take my novel off the market, a message left on her answering machine to which she never responded. I have to tell you, Michael, you've become so admirably calm. If I had any doubts about entrusting you with this project, they have been completely dispelled. <laughs> he rises, flushed, pleased, enjoying his sweat now, it seems, like a successful hunter or athlete. 
get well soon, Sally, he says, and starts off on the descent to Bank Street. Thank you.
uh, we had a joke where, where she would call me on the phone. I would say, Sally, I have to get off the phone because I have a writing about you. I can't talk to you. <laughs> and, uh, an instance of your uh, breakdown, on, on my part, breakdown. But um, uh, uh, finally, I did give her the book to read. And with great trepidation, um, it occurred to me that though it was the furthest thing from my mind to harm her, that actually the reliving of this, the telling, let's face it, the news about ourselves that we never get, the news that we're always fishing for, the news that we're really interested in is how others see us. Um, I think that's true of most of us, you know? We wonder how we're seen. This is a truth about ourselves that we never really are privy to. There's no one will tell us how they really see us. Least of all, our closest friends. Occasionally, our closest friends. It usually ends the friendship. Um, the 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 the. Here I am telling Sally how she was seen during an extreme event of behavior. During an extreme behavior, I thought she, Sally would often speak to me of her amnesia, her merciful manic amnesia. She had manic attacks after this one. Her merciful manic amnesia, where she would remember things in flashes, she would remember her insights, she would remember feelings, but a continuous narrative was not available to her. The, the manic seizure somehow didn't have continuity in a narrative way to her. Um, um, or maybe it did, but in a different way. Anyway, here I was bringing it all back. I was concerned that she would relive it, that perhaps at worst it would trigger another manic attack that it would appall her, that it would shame her. But when she read it, she said to me, I mean, we made a big deal of it. You know, I sent her the galley. I waited for the last minute, about two months before it was to be published. And I sent her the galleys, and I said, she was living in Vermont, and I said, I'll come to Vermont and be with you after you've read it, and we'll talk about it. And she read it, and she said, don't, don't bother coming up. You know? and, and she said, um, um, she said, I loved it. She said it was like, I'm trying to remember exactly how she put it. She said, I felt as if I was reading about someone else. A 15-year-old girl named Sally who had been to hell and was the only one who didn't know it, which was typical of her aphoristic. But I thought that was a great response. And that's the best I can give you as to how Sally would have told the story. She was, she, was, she was in hell, but she didn't know it. Yes? Is she happier now? And do you consider yourself happy that health? Uh, well, you know, it's a chronic illness, and, and it's something she struggles with. Uh, it's a very volatile illness. Sally has a tough case of it, difficult case of it, uh, as, as, as I think is often true of people who when the first presentation is that florid and you're that young, the course can be more difficult or periods of remission are not as long as we would hope, as they are for other people with manic depression. Um, uh, she's become something of an expert of her illness, which I think is a great thing. Uh, uh, as, I, as I was saying before, you know, it's very hard to turn away from a manic attack. Um, uh, because it's so seductive in its early phases. And I don't think, I think any, all of us and every one of us would have a hard time turning away from it. Um, 
Sally, Sally uh, Robert Lowell used to have trouble turning away from his, but then finally, you know, he was diagnosed before chlorpromazine and before even lithium. And uh, lithium worked for him, it doesn't for Sally. Um, uh, and he used to say he could feel a tinkle come up his spine, a kind of electric mercurial feeling come up his spine and he would know an attack was coming on. This is after 10, 12 attacks. And he so dreaded what it did to his life, how it removed him from his life, how it destroyed his life, how it threw him into the hospital, and then the long pull back, the apologies, the shame, the, 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 the six, eight, ten months of lost life. Uh, he so dreaded this that he would overdose his lithium to try to stop it from coming on. And, 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 and twice he was hospitalized for toxicity from lithium, <laughs> trying to stop a manic attack from coming on. And Sally is somewhat the same now. She doesn't overdose on her medication, of course. Uh, uh, but she's very vigilant, tries to forestall an attack from coming on. Not always successfully, but sometimes. Yes? Thank you. Um, when you were talking here today, you're describing your sense of being cut off from your daughter and how jarring that was. Yes. Actually, one of the most poignant parts of the book, I thought, was when you talk about her experience of looking at herself in the mirror, when she's becoming manic and she sees herself disappearing because she's watching herself in the mirror. Yes. About, I thought it was that. So the sense that she actually was losing herself and was yes. watching herself disappear. Yes. Um, Yes. Yes, that's very interesting that you mentioned that, Sally. Uh, uh, there is a cascade of things that happen with mania, and I would venture to say with all psychosis, in which self-consciousness, one's ties to one own, to one's own self-consciousness, to, to self-consciousness, the necessary self-consciousness. You know, some of us go to uh, uh, therapy because we think we're too self-conscious, but in fact, without self-consciousness, we're impossible, and we really can't exist uh, uh, in, in social life. And the, the, the continuous loss of self-consciousness that occurred to Sally, you're referring to that final break when she looked in the mirror, and she saw herself, and she said, you're going away. And it was like a kind of a light bulb when that little filament, that last filament, just breaks. She described that later on to me. I'll take one more question. Yes? The moment you describe in the emergency room where the attending psychiatrist in 90 seconds to recognize the situation, which is in so far as that I have an attending psychiatrist have been in literally thousands of times with this family. Yes. Thank you. Oh, no, my pleasure. I, I, I know that feeling. I worked as an interpreter, a simultaneous Spanish-English interpreter in Manhattan Criminal Court during the height of the crack epidemic. 
and uh, these people would come, and I would be the voice of the defendants, and it was one after another, you know. And but you forget that each one of these people is 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 living a life and death drama, and of course you go, yeah, yeah, and you start telling their and and you're just going on to the other. And of course, the whole structure is it's impossible, but yet. We're, we're all human, right? Yeah. Yes, last question. As a, a writer and a father and a person, what, what, what was it you were seeking to do in taking the medication? And did you accomplish it? And aside from, obviously, complexity. Yes. good question. I'm not sure I accomplished anything except an interesting scene. Uh, <laughs> I think every doctor should take every medicine. <laughs> I think, you know, I, I, I accomplished some, I, I, I understood some measure of what Sally was going through and what, and what um, my brother, my older brother, who an illness, uh, a, a mental illness, also take. I understood what, what, what it means to be on this, on, in some scratching the surface way. Yeah. But I think, you know, I'm, 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 I'm glad I did it. I wouldn't do it again, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. I just want to remind you all that Michael will still be here, and there'll be wine and cheese here, and there are books in the back. And Michael, you're willing to sign them? Sure. And Michael's willing to sign them. <laughs> Thank you all very much. I hope to see you next month.